my lure for women. Well, not really. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. Not as many people as last time. And I bet you it was easy to find a place to park. Welcome to the Stewart Observatory Public Evening Series. We welcome you on a beautiful night in Tucson, Arizona. And we also welcome you, those of you who are watching this podcast, on the internet, streaming live at www, no, streaming taped, uh, www.as.arizona.edu. And those of you viewing the podcast on iTunes U, University of Arizona page. Uh, I wanted to mention that since our semester is coming to a close, as I said, we can't have the next lecture in two weeks because there are final exams in this room that Monday night. So instead, Dr. Mark Sykes from Planetary Science Institute is going to give us the latest reports from Ceres and Pluto from both the Dawn and the New Horizons mission. That is one week from tonight on December 7th at 7.30. Then I have already scheduled the first two uh, lectures of the new year. On January 11th, and that's two days before classes begin, we'll have Dr. Theodora Carolidi. Uh, she is at Stewart Observatory. She's a postdoc in our astrobiology group, and she's going to give a talk on searching for rainbows, clouds, and life on extrasolar planets. Then we have an actual string theorist coming to visit us from Harvard University, Dr. Andrew Strominger, on January 25th. For those of you who are in the habit of attending the College of Science lecture series, I know I think that's the night it begins, but since it's not an astronomy theme, I'm still going to have astronomy lectures on Monday nights every other Monday night, in case you'd rather hear about astronomy. Um, and he didn't give me a title, but the lecture will be about string theory. Um, if you are a student, I will stamp your notes at the end of tonight's presentation at this table down here. It's a clear night. The telescope is open. So at the conclusion of tonight's lecture, you can wander up two flights of stairs at the Stewart Observatory and look through our 21-inch telescope. Or you can also, at the same time, go buy a book and get it signed. And we'll also have a reception, cookies and lemonade, after tonight's lecture. So without further ado, let's get to tonight's speaker. Tonight's speaker is Dr. Stephen Strom. Um, Dr. Strom basically got all his degrees at Harvard. Bachelor's degree, master's degree, doctor's degree in astronomy at Harvard. I know. Um, but we won't hold that against him. Um, then, uh, a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard. He was at SUNY Stony Brook for a while. Then he went to the National, I don't think it was called National Optical Astronomy Observatory. But yeah, Kitt Peak National Observatory was a faculty member at the University of Massachusetts for a while, and then back to the National Optical Astronomy Observatory. When I uh, started in astronomy as a graduate student in the 80s, if you wanted to know about star formation, you read Strom and Strom, okay? Because almost every year, there, you, there are papers in the Astrophysical Journal, Strom and Strom, right? The doctor is Strom. They were infrared pioneers. They studied, I mean, I still in my class use a series of, of uh, course lectures when they did them on videotape on VHS from 1994, Coast Community College. And Steve and Karen Strom give nice little lectures on star formation. And I still play them in my class when we cover star formation. Uh, they pretty much wrote the book on the areas of our galaxy where new stars are formed. But uh, Dr. Strom has also moved off into other areas as well, and I think he's going to tell us about that tonight. So without further ado, Dr. Stephen Strom on the topic of fusion of art and astronomy. Steve. Thanks a lot, Tom, for that very generous, uh, very generous um, introduction. Uh, you want to turn the volume up? or? Well, doing this. Let me it's, it's me. Okay. Are you radioactive? Yes. Well, it says fusion. Would you like a little bit higher light level than this? This is fine. This I is think fine. it'll be fine if everybody can stay awake. Okay. So this is a somewhat unusual lecture. 
the first part of the lecture follows my evolution uh, both as uh, an artist and as, as an astronomer. Uh, the second part uh, uh, segues from uh, a discussion of the image making for the book Earth and Mars uh, into a discussion of how those two planets came to be uh, and uh, in the end how frequent uh, life-bearing planets uh, might uh, emerge naturally from the process of star and planet formation. So I call the first part uh, of uh, this talk uh, From Ser Serendipity to Passion uh, and uh, You'll see why, because many of the steps along the way were totally uh, random and unpredict unpredictable, uh, as was, in fact, uh, my uh, journey uh, through uh, astronomy. So uh, I'd like to start out with my introduction to photography. Uh, this is an early 1940s uh, uh, selfie. Uh, uh, it required it's, it's, it required an analog device rather than a digital device, namely a mirror. And in order to uh, enjoy fully enjoy the selfie, required a little bit of post processing. And so this is what it actually looked like when it was rectified. What I'd like to draw your attention to is not the infant being held, uh, but rather the twin lens reflex camera. Uh, my dad uh, was uh, a teacher, uh, and uh, teachers uh, were uh, remunerated in those days about as well as they're remunerated today, uh, namely not much at all. And so uh, he was a bit entrepreneurial, and uh, in our relatively small uh, apartment set up a dark room and uh, took advantage of the, uh, of, of the times to photograph all the baby boom kids uh, in uh, a 300 person apartment com uh, complex. So that was the camera he used. Uh, when I was seven, uh, well prior to, uh, to seven, uh, I was a photographer's assistant. Uh, this is a photograph taken uh, on Long Island Sound on a, uh, on a beach, and that's my dad's ex uh, exposure meter. When I was seven, uh, two things, two wonderful things happened. One, I was given uh, a child's encyclopedia, which I uh, systematically opened at the A volume and uh, lighted on astronomy. Now, it could have been archaeology. It could have been anthropology, but it turned out that it was, uh, that it was astronomy. Uh, and I developed a passion for uh, astronomy. And my folks uh, managed to pull together the, uh, the dollars needed to purchase a small Galilean-sized, one-inch diameter refracting telescope, which I started to use at age seven. And that was the first of many telescopes that I, uh, that I had or built prior to going off to, uh, to, to college. At the same time, again, when I was about seven, uh, my dad allowed me the first use of that twin lens reflex camera that I showed you uh, in, the previous, uh, in the previous slide, uh, that, and he allowed me to, to make the first use of the darkroom. So in, a, in essence, the two passions of my life began uh, at about age seven. So. Photography was uh, an extraordinarily important part uh, of uh, much of my astronomical career. This is a photograph of the Mayall a four-meter telescope. And I estimate, uh, estimated that I spent, oh, something on the order of 150 nights sitting up uh, in uh, uh, this cage uh, within, at the top of the telescope, the mirrors on the high half a laser writer or printer somewhere. Hang on a minute. I have to empty my pockets. Yes. Not that one. Ah, the green button. So the mirror is down here closed. This is the uh, cage. And in here uh, is uh, a, a big plate holder. Uh, and that held photographic plates. You sat up in that cage for most of the night. Uh, in those days, uh, acting as a great human servo mechanism, keeping the telescope exactly pointed uh, to the same spot on the sky because the ex exposures 
we're typically uh, on the order of hours in order to rec record uh, the um, information. Here is a picture of a cluster of galaxies that I studied during the 10-year period that I was interested in how galaxies formed. And here's a close-up of, of, the, of the picture. Many of you who are astronomy uh, uh, aficionados will recognize this at the, as the center of the coma cluster of, uh, of galaxies. And this is one of the photographs that, uh, uh, that, that I took. Uh, at the same time, Karen, to whom, uh, my late wife, to whom uh, Tom uh, alluded, uh, Karen and I worked uh, a good deal uh, uh, on uh, efforts, early efforts, to uh, quantitatively analyze the information contained on photographic plates and wrote uh, a good deal of software uh, that allow, allowed us to display and analyze information recorded on photographic plates, the main medium uh, of recording images prior to the advent of the charge-coupled uh, devices and CMOS devices uh, that are found in today's um, ubiquitous digital cameras. During a sabbatical, oh, sorry, another serendipitous um, uh, event, uh, one of our four children, our third, uh, became very interested in photography at the age of uh, about um, uh, 13 and wanted to take some courses at uh, the, uh, uh, the Tucson Art Museum. Uh, and we were informed that he was, would be unable to take those courses uh, uh, without our accompanying uh, him. So we decided to do that. And uh, a sort of latent passion was rekindled at that time, which led to our, uh, our taking uh, courses, first in history of photography and then studio courses here at the University of Arizona. We had the good fortune of spending uh, a sabbatical year uh, at Berkeley where uh, I had the chance to meet with an inspiring man, Bill Garnett, uh, who was uh, a photographer who uh, whose main work was aerial photography. This is a, uh, an image of, uh, of a dry lake that Bill took from a specially designed uh, airplane. Here at the University of Arizona, I worked primarily with Todd Walker, the late Todd, uh, Todd Walker, uh, who uh, in fact was a, uh, an, had an enormous role in guiding uh, the evolution of my photographic vision. Um, this is what I looked like, more or less, when I started um, uh, photographing. Um, I'm, I guess I looked, you know, intent, serious in the middle of Death Valley on the typical day that we went to Death Valley, which was usually cold and windy and snowy, believe it or not. So what I'd like to do uh, is to follow my photographic vision until uh, the uh, material that comprises um, Earth and Mars is brought into focus. So I'll start out with some early work. Uh, this work was uh, inspired by uh, color field uh, uh, painting. Uh, I have a, a particular uh, weakness for that uh, particular art uh, form. In any event, uh, instead of displaying desert uh, landscapes in, in all their grandeur, I decided to focus on the sky. Maybe it was my astronomical background, I don't know. But in any, uh, in any event, the landscape is reduced to a, uh, 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 to a miniature strip of, of color at the, uh, at the bottom of the image. And these images were uh, typically printed quite small. They were four by four inches uh, in size. And so that did, uh, once again, it was grand counter to the grand landscapes, which are rather typical of the way the southwestern landscapes, that uh, southwestern landscape is uh, represented. So, during the early 1980s, uh, thanks to a generous vacation policy at the National Optical Astronomy Observatory, uh, my wife and I were able to spend uh, eight weeks during the summer uh, working on the Navajo Reservation. Uh, that gave me an opportunity to photograph uh, the landscape in the Four Corners area, and uh, more important than that, uh, led to a series of connections with 
a number of Native American writers and, uh, and artists, among whom is the well-known poet uh, Joy Harjo, this year's recipi recipient of the Wallace Stevens uh, Award. Um, the University of Arizona in 1989 published a collaboration between Joy, Joy and me called Secrets from the Center of the World, uh, and it comprised uh, images taken uh, on the Navajo Reservation uh, along with jo Joy's magnificent poetry. Uh, there's the front uh, of, of the book and a few images uh, from Secrets of the Center, from the Center of the World. You'll note that my approach to photographing the southwestern landscape um, tends to result in uh, rather muted tones and uh, understated uh, imagery in which there is um, a strong reaction to color and sculptural rhythm. Oops, I'm sorry. A monograph of um, my images was put together by uh, Dowie Lewis Publishing in the, U uh, in the UK. It's called Earth Forms. Uh, there it is, book jacket and all. Uh, the cover image. This is taken from the, the rim of Canyon de Chez, near Mummy Cave Overlook. There are mud hills near Naslini, Arizona, on the Navajo Reservation. Is Cathedral Valley um, uh, near Capitol Reef National Park. This is looking across an, an area that the Navajo referred to as Beautiful Valley uh, near Ganado, Arizona. This is near Hanksville, Utah. Anyway, a series of about 40 of these images uh, are included in the Earth Forms uh, monograph. This is in Death Valley, Titus Canyon. Uh, University of Arizona Press also published a book that spoke to or speaks to the aesthetics <coughs> and ecology of southwestern grasslands. It's called Sonoida Plain and uh, contains some wonderful essays by Carl and Jane Bach. Uh, they also published a collaboration with Navajo poet Laura Tohi. It's called Seya Deep in the Rock, and it's uh, an evocation poetic and uh, photographic of Canyon de Chez. Uh, in the works is a collaboration with U University of Arizona poet Allison Deming called Death Valley Painted Light, which will be distributed by the U of A Press. Another book called Tidal Rhythms, Change and Resilience at the Edge of the Sea is by Barbara Hurd and photographs that I took. And now to Earth and Mars. Um, this book, also by the UVA Press, is called Earth and Mars, A Reflection. It's a collaboration uh, with the planetary astronomer Brad Smith, who spent time here at the University of Arizona. Uh, here's the cover. The picture of the Martian surface was our sand dunes. Let me tell you a little bit about the, the book. This is another serendipitous event. Uh, in, in late 2010 or early 2011, uh, my son-in-law uh, sent me an email, and he said, uh, Steve, congratulations on having some of your photographs shown on the front page of the Boston Globe. And I said, um, I doubt whether they could have done that because they didn't contact me. Um, my son-in-law likes to, always has liked to, to pull my leg a little bit, and what he was referring to are some early image releases uh, from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, and specifically from the high-rise camera developed at the Lunar and Planetary Lab here at the U of A. Um, and uh, I laughed, and then about a year uh, later, uh, during uh, a Christmas where I became a little bit bored, I decided to take a look at, the, uh, at some of the raw data from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, and uh, began to select some, uh, some Martian landscapes which appealed to me aesthetically. And then I began to pair them with terrestrial land, uh, landscapes. And then I decided uh, to, uh, to uh, not just look at things from an aesthetic, an aesthetic standpoint, 
but to ask the question, which one of these lands, uh, uh, which set of pairs of these landscapes uh, could tell a story, specifically uh, the action of various physical forces working on the two planetary surfaces. So uh, here's a, a sort of a graphical summary of what I did. There are these long uh, strip maps uh, that are partially processed data in the uh, in the uh, high-rise database. Uh, I selected by examination of these uh, long strip maps uh, an area that looked particularly interesting. I picked out uh, a Martian image that was interesting. And then I went to my quote-unquote database of terrestrial images and picked out a pair, uh, uh, an image pair that uh, uh, reflected some of the same forces at work on, on the two planetary surfaces. So first, an overview of, I, the book is arranged, uh, you may think this is kind of, a, kind of a corny way to arrange it, but uh, anyway, I decided to, to, to sort things out to give an overview of both planetary surfaces, sort of to, to, to introduce, to provide a visual introduction. Second was to look at the effects of what I call fire, namely volcanic activity. Uh, then to look at the action of air uh, and then water. So the Aristotelian elements, earth, air, air, fire, and water. So you may consider that corny or not, but that's how the book is organized. So here's a, an overview of um, uh, of both the uh, terrestrial and uh, Martian surface. Here's a photograph. Uh, even though it says Earth there, it's of Mars. And in particular, uh, it's a photograph of, uh, of the surface of Mars in which you see in white carbon dioxide ice, in red dust on the very surface of Mars. And those black streaks are uh, ejecta from underneath this, uh, the surface. They're, uh, 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 they're dust, black dust that ejected as uh, carbon dioxide ice uh, sublimates, that is, transforms from a solid to a gas, and like a fire extinguisher, blows those particles up from below the Martian surface where the wind blowing on Mars carries the dust uh, along those streaks that you, uh, that you see. Uh, here's a pairing uh, of um, just a mineral block on Mars on the left and a mineral block on Earth on the right. The scale on the left is, as they will be in all cases, is about half a mile on a side. On the right, it's about uh, a couple of feet uh, of sandstone um, near uh, Height, Utah. On the left uh, is a Martian photograph where you see carbon dioxide ice on the tops of hills on the surface of Mars. And on the right is uh, ice embedded uh, on, the, on the creek at Canyon de Chez. Again, half a mile versus a few feet. Uh, the spider-like patterns on the left are carbon dioxide ice on the surface of, of Mars. On the right-hand side is some, um, some uh, erosion of sandstone, uh, 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 again, near Height, Utah. The left-hand side are layers of, uh, of uh, Martian earth, red, and the bluish-white is carbon dioxide ice. These are layers visible uh, near the poles of, uh, of Mars. And on the right-hand side are uh, deposits of, st of, of sandstone, different uh, minerals uh, in near White Pocket, Utah. Again, on the left-hand side, uh, you see alternate blue and, uh, and orange soil and, uh, and carbon dioxide ice at, uh, at, this, uh, at the pole. I believe it's the south pole of Mars, doesn't matter. And what you're seeing uh, is you're looking along uh, uh, an area where, there's, uh, where uh, the, uh, the land has sunk a little bit, um, revealing uh, uh, layers uh, deposited over different seasons, where you have some seasons in which the Martian surface is covered by, uh, by, uh, by, uh, by dust uh, as winds blow across the planetary surface. Other seasons, just carbon dioxide ice is, um, uh, is deposited without much dust uh, being embedded within it. The right-hand side is, uh, again, uh, layered sandstone. Fire, here's uh, the uh, side of the uh, Mauna Loa volcano on Earth. On the left-hand side here is a series of, um, uh, of 
cinder cones on Mars. On the right-hand side uh, is a photograph of some volcanic rock from Craters of the Moon National Park. Again, eroded volcanic cinder cones and eroded volcanic rock. Air. This is a, a, about a half a mile on a side photograph of a beautiful sand dune on the surface of, of Mars. Left-hand side, uh, again, you see carbon dioxide ice, white, and the dark red is subsurface soil that's been ejected upward, as I mentioned before, and blown by the up to 150 mile an hour winds that occur on the surface of Mars. And on the right-hand side is a few feet of beach on, uh, on the Oregon coast in which wind has blown sand uh, uh, that's caught by uh, little pebbles embedded in the wet sand. Dunes, again, uh, on the left-hand side on Mars, uh, and on the right-hand side, a few feet of uh, dunes, White Sands National Monument. Another dune on Mars, uh, left-hand side, a dune um, uh, from the Great Sand Dunes National Monument, or National Park, Colorado. Dunes left, wind eroded sandstone on the right. And finally, water. Um, here you see a photograph taken on the North Pole of Mars in which you see uh, below water ice and above in that complex pattern, carbon dioxide ice. And what happens as sunlight begins to strike the, uh, uh, the polar regions of the planet is that the um, carbon dioxide ice sublimates. Uh, it's the first to go as it's, as it's heated. Its sublimation point is lower than that of, uh, of ice. And so you see the water below uh, at the poles. Another example of carbon dioxide ice on top and water below uh, on the left uh, and uh, sandstone layers on the right. Here you see the, um, uh, the fractal patterns reminiscent of uh, the deltas, uh, say, or the delta uh, at the mouth of the Mississippi River. Left-hand side is Mars, showing that water once flowed abundantly on the surface of that planet. And you see the eroded um, sides of the um, Ubi Crater in Death Valley on the right-hand side. Again, uh, the delta-like whoops, the delta-like patterns, um, half a mile on a side uh, on Mars, again resulting from flowing water on that surface, and then a few feet of sand uh, on uh, an Oregon beach. Uh, here's some carbon dioxide uh, ice um, peeping up uh, in cracks on the surface of, of, uh, of Mars near the poles and cracked mud on the Dirty Devil River near Height, Utah. Finally, uh, I think it's finally, uh, more carbon dioxide uh, and water ice patterns and of course water ice on the right. I know you're awake. This is, this is asking you to take a deep breath, as I will, and we're gonna transition into the astronomical piece of of this talk. So, uh, okay, um, I almost feel as if I'm screaming, so I try to modulate my voice. All right, I threatened to tell you how Earth and Mars came to be. So, now I'm going to I started life, I, Tom didn't tell you this, but I started life uh, doing computational models. Uh, and so there must be something still wired in me to think the way a theoretician thinks. So of course, you know, the famous, the old, famous old saw, consider a spherical cow, and you work from there. Anyway, imagine uh, that, uh, you have to imagine, uh, Four and a half billion years ago, uh, when uh, the sun first began to take form, its life began uh, in darkness in an entity called uh, a dark cloud or a dark molecular cloud. Uh, the cloud, uh, about, a, tenth, uh, about uh, uh, a few tenths of a light year across, uh, comprised 
tiny grains, dust grains, largely silicate-like, about a tenth the size of a grain uh, of sand on a, on a beach. Uh, also, uh, uh, in that dark molecular cloud were largely uh, uh, molecules uh, of molecular hydrogen, that is a pair of hydrogen molecules bonded, bonded together, along with a number of, of trace elements. I shouldn't knock those trace elements because we're made of them, but nevertheless, uh, in terms of mass, the cloud was largely this dusty material, which made the cloud dark or opaque at optical wavelengths, and, uh, and uh, molecular gas, uh, molecular hydrogen, and some helium gas. It turns out that uh, this, uh, the sun, uh, the cloud in which the sun was born, uh, was uh, impacted uh, by uh, the effects of a nearby supernova, which forced the uh, material in the uh, in this molecular cloud to begin to collapse. What what did it have to overcome? Well, it needed to overcome the internal pressure uh, in this molecular cloud. Uh, the cloud is not near absolute, it, it's, uh, the cloud is not at absolute zero. It had a temperature of about 10 degrees or 20 degrees above absolute zero. And so the molecules in this molecular cloud exerted an outward pressure which opposed uh, the force of gravity trying to make it collapse. The bump that the cloud received from the nearby super, uh, supernova was enough to push it over the edge so that it began to collapse. It turns out that, this, uh, that the cloud, we know this by observing many molecular clouds, that the precursor cloud to the sun must have been rotating. Uh, and it turns out that when a rotating cloud is forced to collapse, uh, it collapses uh, 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 something like this. It becomes flattened. And then the material that is spinning most rapidly in the, uh, in the cloud uh, uh, collapses to a disk. And uh, it turns out that interaction of material in this disk drives material uh, inward toward the protos, the object that uh, is the protosun, which is about to become, uh, uh, in a few million years after the beginning of collapse, a star of the mass of, uh, of, uh, of our own parent star. So what's happening is that you have this rotating molecular cloud that's collapsing. Material is, uh, is falling largely onto this disk and is being accreted onto the surface of this stellar uh, seed, which is about to become the sun. And over a few million years, uh, the mass of the, uh, uh, of the sun grows from some small fraction of the solar mass to the mass it has, uh, has today. So, now, what about the formation of planets? You recall that what I, that, uh, what I mentioned about, molecular, uh, uh, about the dark molecular cloud was that one of its significant constituents were these tiny dust grains which at optical wavelengths collectively uh, uh, resulted in the uh, in that uh, in those in the cloud being dark. It turns out that uh, the way planets were built started out with these grains about a tenth the size uh, of a grain of sand colliding with one another. Some of them sticking, more collisions, more sticking, bigger objects uh, until you get. Uh, kilometer-sized, vial-sized bodies called planetesimals. Those planetesimals, in turn, collided with one another, stuck with one another, and finally produced uh, the cores of the planets that we see today. So imagine going from these tiny dust grains to planetesimals uh, orbiting uh, the uh, proto-sun. You have lots of bodies uh, uh, at the beginning. Some of them grow, uh, some of them are, are ejected gravitationally from the system until you finally build the cores of the planets we know today. 
Well, that sounds pretty remarkable that we're standing on a body uh, 6,000 miles in diameter that was comprised initially of grains a tenth the size of, the, uh, of a grain of sand. That's a miracle when you think about it. But, you know, I've told this great story. Now the question is, can I show you some pictures that might at least convince you that what I just said is quasi-plausible? Well, here is a picture uh, of uh, a natal molecular cloud, one that is likely to give birth to, to young stars. You'll notice that it's dark, uh, and uh, what, it, what you're looking at is this funny-shaped cloud viewed in projection against the rich background field of stars. And you can see that at optical wavelengths, at least, uh, the cloud is quite uh, opaque, which allows the temperatures on the inside to get very low. And as a result, it makes it easier to, to collapse because the internal pressure uh, in that cloud is a lot lower. I also said that early on, uh, you had uh, an infalling envelope of material and from this rotating uh, um, cloud infalling onto a disk. Here's a set of images taken uh, with uh, both the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, sorry, with, sorry, with the Hubble Space Telescope and the NICMOS camera developed here at the University of Arizona. And you see these uh, stars, young stars, viewed edge on where you have the opaque material in the disk, and you have this envelope of material. Light uh, is scattering off dust embedded in the infalling envelope, falling onto the disk. And what's happening is that material is getting accreted from the disk onto the surface of the growing star. Meh. I don't know. Maybe you believe that, or maybe you don't. Here's some more Hubble Space Telescope images um, taken of stars surrounded by disks. Uh, the Orion Nebula. So the bright background here is provided by the glow from the Orion Nebula. And what you're seeing are silhouettes uh, of, uh, of disk, disks seen in projection against the bright light from the Orion Nebula. You see the protostar, protosun in the middle, a disk here. Uh, and um, you say, OK, well, that kind of looks plausible. but you also ought to see some disks viewed edge on. And sure enough, you do. Uh, the, the disks are oriented at, at random so that those which, which are ed edge on are like, like this, and those that are polon are like this. So you expect circular looking disks for polon and these, these kind of, uh, of, uh, of straight lines for disks viewed edge on as if you were looking at a, a they don't have records. They don't have CD. What, what is it they have now? It's, iPad. it's hard to think of an analog. They used to have records, and they used to have CDs, but they don't anymore. It's all, all elsewhere. All right. So a Blu-ray disc. There we go. Hello, even that. Anyway, so you can see here a disc tilted just enough so, uh, towards you so you can see the light from the uh, forming star uh, peeking out. All right. What about this story of collisions? I do. I wonder if that's what's causing the interference. It's possible. Yes. Here it is. Take it away. Sorry about that. I turned it off, but I. Oh, well, you got an iPad. I, that, you know, I, it's got my life there. Don't. Um. So, uh, what about collisions? Well, there's ample evidence of of collisions taking, uh, taking place. Um, here's a picture of Mercury with all its surface pockmarked with craters. It doesn't have uh, a significant atmosphere. It has a little bit of atmosphere, but nothing significant that would burn up uh, incoming uh, uh, objects colliding with the uh, surface. Here's, here are moons of Saturn and Jupiter in the outer solar system. Again, pockmarked with craters. Mars surface is pockmarked with craters because at present its atmosphere uh, is not sufficient to preclude um, uh, most meteors from striking uh, the surface uh, without burning up. All right, what about um, uh, other evidence of collisions? Well, 
even today, uh, in our own solar system, there, is on, there are ongoing collisions uh, between, uh, between small asteroids and comets, and uh, those collisions produce dust. Dust in the plane of the, uh, of the solar system where all the planets uh, orbit around the, the sun, and you can see the light from uh, that uh, uh, material uh, scattered toward us uh, at if you're in a dark uh, in a dark setting uh, after sunset you can see the glow of the so zodiacal light which is in fact light sc sunlight scattered uh, earthward by dust uh, in, uh, uh, in, a, in the plane of our solar system stars too show this uh, evidence here's a, there's a star whose bright light uh, has been blocked out by something called a coronagraphic disk. Anyway, you've got you've, the starlight is blocked out, but you can see the scattered light from the dust uh, produced as material, uh, as, as bodies uh, in the disk uh, uh, surrounding this uh, star uh, collide and produce uh, continuously replenish dust. Um, what about planets? Well, people are now beginning to be able to, um, uh, to image at least bright, uh, uh, massive planets around uh, around um, uh, around other stars. They use a variety of techniques. Not only a coronagraphic mask to block out the light from the central star, but techniques to correct for uh, the turbulent uh, motions of the Earth's atmosphere, uh, which distort the uh, wave the uh, wave fronts from incoming starlight and produce a kind of a shaking pattern or a shimmering pattern called seeing. In any event, you can, you can detect the motion of turbulent uh, elements above the telescope and correct using uh, deformable optics, uh, using a technique called adaptive optics so that you can uh, look for faint objects in the vicinity of bright stars and planet-like objects have been um, orbiting their current uh, stars. Many of you have uh, heard over the past several years of results from NASA's Kepler mission, uh, which uh, for three, I believe it was three years uh, during its uh, working, still working, but not the way it was designed to, during, uh, during the first three years uh, of its mission lifetime, stared uh, at uh, a, a, a patch of sky in the constellation Cygnus and uh, looked for um, uh, eclipses of stars by planets transiting the surface of the star. So you have a planet, and then as it blocks out part of the light from the parent star, what happens is you see a slight diminution of the, of the light from the parent star, which indicates the presence of an eclipse. And if you see um, uh, multiple uh, uh, eclipses, uh, you're pretty sure you've got an orbiting body around the uh, 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 around the, um, the star. Kepler was able to, to detect brightness uh, uh, changes of one part, I believe, in, in, uh, in 100 million uh, in order to detect near-Earth-sized planets. So here are the, the light, the actual light curves uh, for some of the objects cleverly named 4B, 5B, et cetera, et cetera, but in any event. Well, you know, when you find lots of planets, you sort of lose that romantic connection to Greek and Roman mythology, so. Okay, so Kepler has found lots and lots of, of uh, thousands uh, by this time of, of systems surrounding by, orbit, uh, by orbiting planets. For those that may be interested in how many might be Earth-like in the sense of being able to support life, uh, let me give a little bit of a report on that. Uh, one of the major criteria that people assume uh, uh, when asking how many Earth-like planets uh, there uh, might sorry, how many Earth-like life there planets there might, might be, the assumption is that such a planet uh, needs to be in a zone where you can uh, support liquid water, not so close that the water would be in the form of steam, not so far away that the water would be form of, in the form of ice, because we 
suspect that life, as we know it anyway, uh, was uh, uh, initiated uh, in an aqueous uh, environment. So, you know, people look uh, at, at some stars somewhat brighter than the sun, in which case the habitable zone where water can stay liquid is further away from the parent star than uh, is the case for our own solar system. And for very faint stars, uh, you have to be a lot closer in order to get uh, enough heat to keep uh, the water liquid. So there's uh, a defined habitable uh, uh, zone dependent on the luminosity of the parent star. So, um, see if I, yeah. so I have an ancient slide for which you'll forgive me, but it doesn't matter. Um, here's the size uh, uh, of the planet relative to the size of Earth. How is the size determined? Well, you know the bright, you know the size of the parent star, uh, and you also know the duration of the. Uh, uh, of the eclipse, and you can also look at the uh, at the uh, at the little deviations from uh, an absolute square wave, and you can infer the diameter from uh, from the uh, shape of the light curve produced during the eclipse. In any event, this is size. Oops. Yeah, this is size. Big ones, Earth-sized ones, are right here, Earth, uh, and this is the orbital period in days. Um, what do I do? Oh, sorry. It shows you how passionate I am about the subject as to bring us back to it. I can't even tell. Okay, so here's one Earth diameter. Here's um, 20 orbital periods, days, 10 days, 40 days, getting close to 365 days out here. There are now known Earth-like planets orbiting uh, close to their in, 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 um, inhabitable zones. So. Plenty of those. Um, the big question is uh, the following. You remember the story that I told, and I, I hope I have you at least half believing, that the Earth was formed through successive collisions. In fact, the Earth system was formed by a, uh, 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 by a collision of the proto-Earth with a Mars-sized body, that is a size uh, body about half the diameter of the, uh, uh, of the Earth. That's how we believe the Earth-Moon system is put together. So these collisions were non-trivial. When, when uh, big bodies collide with one another, or even when lots of little bodies collide uh, with a bigger body, energy of motion is converted, some of it is converted into heat. And so the proto-Earth was quite hot, hot enough so that water boiled hot enough so that the steam was hot enough so that the velocity of the, of the water vapor molecules was sufficient so that water could leave the surface of, uh, of Earth. So in order for there to be um, water on Earth, a good fraction of the water that comprises the oceans and rivers that we have today had to be brought in from elsewhere. There are two candidates for elsewhere. One is the asteroid belt. Two is the belt of comets that, sorry, the asteroid belt, which uh, the small bodies uh, located between the orbits of, uh, of Mars and Jupiter, and the comet, uh, the belt of comets order, uh, that are uh, orbiting uh, the sun at a distance about 40 times out of the Earth to the sun outside the orbit of Neptune. Uh, either those icy comets or water-rich asteroids had to be brought in. Uh, the answer to whether it was comets or asteroids is being sought. Uh, as you know, there have been uh, uh, studies of, uh, that have been made directly of the surfaces of comets. And the early results, at least based on one comet, suggest that um, uh, the asteroids are the more likely uh, uh, source of, of water based on uh, the observations of the Im of relative amounts of, of hydrogen and its close brother, its isotopic brother, deuterium to hydrogen, uh, two protons rather. Oh, sorry, a proton and a neutron. 
proton and a neutron. Okay. Um, comets haven't been ruled out. Here's one way that um, um, that comets. Well, there's, there's there's some evidence that at least whether comets were the source of water or not, they may well have been uh, the source of uh, a, a period of bombardment called the Epoch of Late Bombardment uh, that occurred about 300 million years after the formation of the solar system. We know this because there are uh, we've been able to age date. Uh, various heavily and lightly cratered re uh, regions on the surface of the moon and have been able to determine that at an age of about 300 million years after the formation of the solar system, there was an enormous bombardment on the, surf of the surface of the moon and indeed of moons surrounding other bodies in the, uh, in the solar system. And people have begun to speculate uh, that uh, the event that triggered the late bombardment uh, was a rearrangement, rearrangement of the planets uh, 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 in the early history of the solar system. In particular, there are a group of scientists who believe that the planets uh, uh, Uranus and Neptune once orbited the sun between the orbits of Jupiter and Saturn. Uh, that configuration is, is uh, gravitationally, dynamically unstable uh, and uh, and the simulations that have been uh, that have been done suggest that over a period of a few hundred million years, that unstable configuration uh, would have resulted in an event which uh, cast Jupiter and Neptune outward uh, toward the belt of uh, comets, the Kuiper belt of comets, outward of the current orbit of Neptune. It's gravitationally stirred the comets and uh, sent a good fraction, a significant fraction of them inward toward the terrestrial planets re re planet region near Earth and Moon and Mercury and Mars, um, and uh, the, that that may be um, uh, how uh, at least the heavy bombardment took place, if not the delivery of water. So. The question is whether you've got asteroids being gravitationally thrust inward or comets sent inward by a re rearrangement of the solar system's architecture. The question then becomes not just how many Earth-like planets there are orbiting around their parent stars in regions which can support, which are not too hot, not too cold, but can support liquid water. But how did you get liquid water back to the surface of these initially very hot protoplanets? And the question then becomes, how many uh, solar system architectures out there were uh, of the right sort so that you could get transport of water just at the right time so that life could begin to take place? So we still haven't answered the question. We've answered, yes, there are lots of planets. Planets are formed naturally as a result of the formation process, which gives us stars. There are lots of Earth-like planets orbiting their parent stars at favorable distances to support liquid water. But the question is, how many of them arose from planetary architectures which delivered water to the surfaces of, uh, of those planets? Uh, and therefore, how many might be supporting life, at least as we know it? And that's it. Thank you very much. Gave it back. It's everybody's a witness. Thank you. Thank you so much, Steve. We have time for questions. We have any questions for our speaker? And I'm going to have to figure out what's going on with the sound system. That crackling. I'm going to figure that out by next week. Any questions for Professor Strom? Yes, right here. Do they actually see a planet, or do they infer it still? Can they actually see planets through the? Telescopes, or is it just inferred? Uh, through, you can use large telescopes uh, com uh, combined with these coronagraphic disks. Remember, you're looking for something that might be, in the case of Jupiter, something like one ten millionth of the of the brightness of its parent star, and in the case of Earth, it's something like one part in a, in a, in a billion. So, you know, it's it's not possible to look through a telescope to to do that. The telescopes that we have today allow us to, uh, to look for 
um, uh, Jupiter and, and more massive pla uh, planets using this coronagraphic disk to block out the light from the central store and adaptive optics that allow us to, to make sure that the light from the central store doesn't shimmer so much that it blocks out the light from the, from the orbiting planet. Other questions? There's a question down there. Oh, over here. Actually, two quick questions. The first one's easy. What was the brand of the twin reflex camera you were using? Oh, my heavens, I don't remember. I'm sorry. That's the hardest one. I, so, sorry, that was not an easy question. But I didn't recognize it, that's why I asked. Yeah, no, uh, uh, it was something my father could afford, so it was not a fancy camera. Okay, I guess it wasn't, wasn't a Roly then. No, <laughs> no, I can guarantee that. All right, my second question has to do with the, we were talking about the orbits in, in terms of days around a star. Yes. And the habitable zones. Yes. Um, different, there are so many different kinds of stars what it, does each have a different habitable zone? Yes, I, try, I guess I went over that point too quickly. So let's take a, uh, uh, a, a star that's a lot more luminous than the sun. Its, its habitable zone would have to be much further, much further out because if, if, if you're pouring that much energy per unit time onto the surface of a planet that was orbiting at the distance of Earth, it would get much too hot. So you'd have to go a lot, uh, a lot further out. And the orbital periods uh, uh, would be a lot uh, would be a lot longer in the case of a more lumin uh, of a more luminous star. Conversely, if you were looking at a at, at a star whose luminosity were say a tenth or a hundredth that of the uh, of the sun, say an M dwarf, a star maybe a tenth the mass of uh, uh, of the of the sun, you might have to get into to uh, the orbit of Mercury uh, to uh, be warm enough in the case of that low-luminosity star in order to, to oh, the advantage, in order to keep, uh, keep water warm enough not to freeze, but when you want to, don't want to get too close so it doesn't get too hot. The advantage of, uh, of, of, of those low-luminosity stars is that they are extraordinarily long-lived. And so if it takes a long time for life to, uh, to develop, uh, those would, might be a very happy, happy places uh, to be uh, and maybe the most likely source. I don't know, but uh, most likely for two reasons. One, uh, you've got a lot of time to, to evolve, and two, uh, there are many more very low-mass stars than there are higher-mass stars. And I think some of the near-Earth, um, or excuse me, Earth-like exoplanet candidates that could be like the Earth, most of them are around anti-stars. Yes, anti-stars. The, the ones that have been... These are tenth of a solar mass-ish. From Kepler. Okay, we have a question up here. I uh, think I remember that one photograph that you uh, presented of the uh, imaging of the planet. I think it's Formohaut. And um, if I uh, actually, my question then is um, it looks like a system that's still in the process of accreting, and the planet around it that has been imaged, would that probably, from this distance from Earth, would it be probably about the size of maybe Saturn or Jupiter? I don't, I would guess it would have to be Jupiter-like just based on its, on its luminosity relative to the parent star. I don't, I don't, I can't answer it exactly. But I can tell you one other thing that I didn't include in the, in the, in the talk, and that there's uh, another way of detecting um, orbiting planets albeit uh, indirectly. And uh, it turns out that there's a, 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 um, an array of, of millimeter wave telescopes, that is, antennae, that detect radio waves at, uh, with, a, uh, uh, with a wavelength of, 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 a, of a few millimeters. Um, the array is called ALMA, the um, Atacama Large Millimeter Array, it's spread out over a 17,000-foot plateau uh, in Chile. Anyway, you, you can uh, uh, use that uh, array to synthesize um, images of, of uh, the regions surrounding young stars. And uh, you're able to image the uh, radiation arising 
from the orbiting disk of gas and dust surrounding these stars, one, and two, what you see uh, uh, in these uh, disks are gaps, gaps that are produced by the effects of, of the gravitational pull and push of, of, of newly formed planets. So think of, of the gaps in, uh, in Saturn's rings, which are caused by shepherding uh, of small, relatively small, small dust and ice particles around Saturn. Exactly the same phenomenon pr produces the gaps in these disks that are seen uh, in their millimeter glowing uh, by Alma. And again, uh, nearby young stars, surround, still surrounded by accreting gas and dust, show evidence of these gaps indicative of the formation of planets, probably jovial size, judging by the size of the gaps. All right, so I want to remind you that our next lecture, our last lecture before the new year, is next week, the 7th of December. We'll talk about Pluto and Ceres. Uh, please join us in the main lobby. We've got cookies, we've got lemon squares, and we've got lemonade. Uh, Dr. Strom's book is for sale. He'll be happy to sign copies for you. And um, I stamp student assignments down here. Let's thank Dr. Strom one more time.